Welcome to Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective podcast, where we meet experts from all walks of life to learn their intrinsic motivation so that they can share it with the world. What do we have in store today? Stay tuned to find out more. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, everybody out there in podcast land. This is another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza. And I am David. And really excited to speak with our guest today. She's going to talk about a lot of shape-shifting. So a lot of guys and girls that listen to our podcast may know a little bit about shape-shifting, but we're not talking about the superhero type. We may be talking about how we are living other, how we're living for other people, and we're shifting ourselves to be or accommodate them, and we may lose ourselves in the process. And our guest today is Lucinda White, and she's going to show us how we can actually get our own power back. So welcome to the podcast, Lucinda. Hi, so happy to be here. Nice to have you. Absolutely. Yeah, before the podcast, David, we were talking, and and it sounds like a you and David were crossing a lot of a lot of ground, at least in the Bay Area. Bay, uh, David's from uh, the Bay Area, and I know some of your background there as well. Yeah, I'm there right now. Where are you from, David? Uh, from San Jose. Oh my gosh, just 30 minutes from me. Yeah, born and raised. I, I was looking at reading, uh, you know, kind of that first chapter, and you said something about wanting to go to your your another property, and then you got on and you took the Sand Hill Road. I was like, Sand Hill Road? Boy, I know that's familiar. I wonder if it's the same one. <laughs> and then you, mentioned, yeah, then you mentioned a couple other things, you know, 280, Portola Valley. I'm like, oh, my gosh. So, yeah. Oh, I love it. When are you coming back? Um, that's a good question. <laughs> I, get, I get asked that all the time. Um, I'm going to try to get back maybe within the next year and a half. Oh, great. Well, give me a shout-out. Come see me. Okay, definitely. I will definitely do that. Yeah, just looking at your site and everything, it's, it's really exciting. Uh, David and our background, uh, not so much David, but I, I remember going to a I Can Do It conference. And in the conference, uh, it was, it was uh, Louise Hay was there, Wayne Dyer was there, uh, Brian Edwards and all these other people there were there. And then uh, on the other side of the conference, it was in this big um, arena. And on the other side, there was this other woman. They were having a, it was a yoga conference, and she was more so into the shamanic energy. And we were just talking about marrying the air energy with the earth energy. And on your site, you have a huge concentration talking about wilderness. So let's back up into how you got into this arena and what was the impetus to lead you in that direction? Well... I actually live um, on another portal. You know, uh, we're right on the edge of wilderness and civilization. So a 10-minute drive, and I'm at Stanford University, and but right, uh, but go the other direction on my property, and it's all open space, Santa Cruz Mountains, a lot of wildlife. So I love that being on the edge when you're talking about air and earth and bringing the dichotomies together. I grew up as a nature child. 
uh, with a single mother from age 0 to 11 in the 60s. She wasn't a hippie, but um, we did live alone, and she struggled to finish her college degree and get a job and take care of me. And I was a nature child. I had a lot of relatives and cousins to play with and was completely connected to my imagination and the other realm and very, very happy, even though we didn't have a lot of material uh, possessions. And then when I was 11, my mom married a man who was really affluent, and it happened overnight, and I moved, and I was cut. I never really saw my my birth clans again and had to adopt to a new clan, a new town, new friends, new rules of behavior, and a new lifestyle. And it was, I didn't understand at the time, but it was sort of traumatic. And then I was put into the the system. It was, and I grew up, I came out of college in 1977, so that was the era of the yuppies. I went to UCLA, I got an MBA, I went on a lot of diets to be skinny and pretty, and so there was a lot of emphasis on external, tangible accomplishments to, to be worthy and valuable. And so by the time I was 27, I was living the American dream. I lived in Los Angeles in a condominium with three girlfriends near the beach. I worked for IBM. I was driving a yellow Porsche. And I all of a sudden realized, oh, my gosh, my feelings and my thoughts inside don't match how I look on the outside. I look so perfect and I'm not happy. And it was the big lie from the culture and the family and the media that all these things would make me happy. And that was 1987 and I didn't have any friends or mentors to help me sort this out. When I tried to talk about it with people, they said, I don't feel sorry for you. You have it all. And so I quit IBM and spiraled into a suicidal depression And ever since then, it's been my lifelong mission to understand what is the deeper meaning of life and what is happiness. Uh, I was following somebody else's path, and so I've spent my entire life seeking and searching and applying to myself and being my own experiment. Now I'm 58, and I'm here to share the wisdom. What we found over over the past year and a half of doing the podcast seems like there's these demarcation lines in the sand, if you will, if, if we're looking linearly. And uh, most recently, a lot of people have had a lot of uh, change or, as we say, hello or God winks. In uh, 2012, there was a lot of change from similar lives, like you were saying, where their eyes were opened. And, you know, the other one was kind of 99, 2000. But before that one was 1987, which was known as the Cosmic Convergence. Are you familiar with that at all? No, I'm not. Yeah, so in 1987, there was this, uh, you know, depending on different schools of thought, there was a big alignment in the universe as far as uh, awareness. And, you know, like you said, in the 50s, in the 60s, there were somewhat of the hippies where you were experimenting. And a lot of it was uh, external also, you know, just trying different drugs and such. But in 87, it was more of a spiritual awakening. There was a lot of, a lot of people that had come into their own awareness where, they were seeing they were living, like you were saying, one life, and it didn't seem like it was their true life. So you had uh, people like, um, what's his name? He's known as Bashar. Uh, he does a lot of channeling. Um, around 85, 87 was also uh, Esther Hicks with coming out with uh, Abraham and such. Um, Jumbalo Melchizedek 
is another person who was going a lot of uh, internal searching around 1987, and it was known as the cosmic convergence, where the veil is becoming thinner and thinner, where we're getting access to uh, other realms that we weren't that we didn't have access to before. And it sounds like even though you didn't know it, you were going through it, and you're <laughs> fortunately or unfortunately, you didn't have that support network, and it seems that's where you had the uh, spiral and, and learning on your own. Oh, that is so fascinating, I, because I definitely resonate with um, the shifts that happened in 1999, 2000, and then again in 2012. Uh, but what's interesting, too, just I just want to put out there is, at the time, it was quite devastating because I didn't have any help, but I, I somehow stayed here and fumbled through and figured things out and it actually made me stronger because I know from firsthand experience and I call myself an inner tracker and I just sought information, applied it to myself and then tested it out over and over. And so at first it seemed like a tragedy, but actually whether you call it destiny or just uh, my constitution or that's the way it is in life, that what seems to be a tragedy is actually an opportunity to grow and learn. And I also was able to put into perspective why I was put into the system to become a yuppie and to achieve the American dream. With I, I, I feel like I had to live it and immerse into it to know it so that I could speak to both sides. So I had to immerse in the spiritual realm to understand that, had to immerse in the material plane to understand that, and then my life has been about bringing the two together because they're both important. We need to master the spirit, the, the earth plane as well and fit into society and follow rules and work because we need to take care of survival, food, shelter, and clothing. So it's really, I say, all is good until it's out of balance. That was, that's, that's the big takeaway at 58 years old. And I have to give you a personal shout-out because it sounds like you were, uh, like myself, living the uh, quote-unquote clandestine life uh, in that we were running into a lot of people when you start getting this awareness and you go to some of these events, and you may have preconceived notions like, oh, these are hippies. They're not like my corporate types. They're not driving the yellow Porsche type of deal, and you're bringing a lot of the, the external to the internal. And so when I met, like, different girls or women, and they were like, oh, my goodness, on the, on the surface level, and, you know, you're driving the nice car and all, then they're like, hey, do you know about this? Do you know about this? And it was like this, uh, like you're living a double life initially until <laughs> you fully embrace both, like you're saying, because uh, most people like to categorize this is one way and this is the other way. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. It's a secret life. And I think a lot of people, I'm realizing a lot of people have that secret life and you're so afraid to bring it into the mainstream because you, we have this inherent desire to belong and fit in because we want connection. And yet there's so much judgment out there and there's so much, um, in the mainstream modern culture in the media, there's just one way to be. And if you're not like that, you're weird. And, and there's this fear that you'll be ostracized, which probably is in our DNA and comes from thousands of years of persecution. But, yeah, I think, you know, a long, long time ago, uh, we were all one and living close to nature. And then... 
there was this idea that you couldn't connect to the spiritual realm and you needed to go to an organization where there was one holy person that could speak to the spiritual realm and we got disconnected from the spiritual realm and we were seeking that guidance from another person. And then after that, there were the gurus who were up on the mountain and people would seek them for wisdom and advice. And now I feel that we're all gurus and we're meant to come down off the mountain and be that guru in the mainstream modern world. Those are the symbols in the way I see it. You, there's a popular saying that uh, words don't teach, and so it's great that you're going through these experiences. And have you found that w- when you're trying to bridge the gap between the two different worlds, uh, if we're keeping with the scene, that people may look at you uh, sideways because they haven't really lived it, and so they may make excuses like, "Well, well, you're different, and uh, you're different, Lucinda, and it only happened to you this way. I could never do that." Are you coming across those type of attitudes? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Especially up until now, things are starting to shift, though, but absolutely, and that's why I held the dichotomy, because when I was living, so after the suicidal depression, I ended up going back into high tech and getting a job, and then I married a CEO and uh, was a high society CEO wife for a long time and raised a family in Silicon Valley had a very visible life. So again, once again, I immersed into another layer and level of the American dream, living in a big mansion. And um, and yet I knew there was more to me than meets the eye, and I was still exploring and having these secret lives and trying to make sense of it all. And you're absolutely right. People didn't understand either side of me. So when I started going off and exploring with hippies or wilderness um, uh, living skills people. I was real, I've always been really attracted to indigenous cultures. So I would seek out the Native American ways, the Bushmen in Africa, and uh, all of their wisdom. And then that led me to people that lived in the forest. And when I was, I felt, I felt out of place in both, both arenas. So when I'm in the high society arena wearing designer clothes, the conversation was so shallow. And they, they thought hippies were just, you know, dirty people that didn't know how to make a living. And when I was with the hippies, they thought I was a, you know, a very superficial, um, Silicon Valley woman who's driving a suburban because I had a lot of kids driving a suburb, a gas-guzzling suburban that's ruining the environment. So I felt really self-conscious in both places for a long time and was trying to figure out which way, where I fit. I mean, there was a time when I was going to leave Silicon Valley and go live in the forest. It was that bad. And then I realized that was just running away. It would be easy to be spiritual in the forest, but I needed to be spiritual in the midst of the modern world. So that was my constant struggle going back and forth. And then when my kids finally went out on their own off to college, I knew it was my time to be that elder of purpose because we're a culture that will do anything to avoid the the discussion of death or aging. And I knew always from a young age that I wanted to be an elder of consequence with wisdom and to share what I had learned with younger people. So I was kind of excited about this. This was my time. And I had to figure out how to bring these two worlds together, and I was trying to figure out which one is me, but then I thought, no, they're both me, so how do I do both? And that's why I wrote the book, so that I could tell my life story to explain what it was to be my calling card, and I completely reshaped and invented myself to now be this person who's living on the edge 
of wilderness and civilization on this property that where I am. And my number one goal and passion is to share this wisdom with people. And I feel now that it was all intended looking back. I have credibility in both worlds now. I've brought it together and I've come out of the closet, which was so scary. But when I'm in the mainstream world talking to high society people, I'm one of them. So they believe me. And when I'm with the hippies, they believe me too, because I'm living here very, I, one of the, um, one of my gifts happened when I, I came across a buffalo bone at an archaeological site, and that became my deep connection to spirit. So for 20 years, I've been collecting animal bones without knowing what I was doing, and I made them into art, and I have this barn that's like a cathedral because the energy is so palpable from the animal kingdom. And so I have credibility with the nature people, too, because of my deep connection to wilderness and animals. I like how, uh, Lucinda, how you say that you know, when you were finding these bones, bone by bone, the animals, they were, they were like a metaphor for your personal, you know, uh, discovery and unmasking. Uh, you talk a little more about that? Yeah, I, in 19, well, somewhere in the 90s, somebody gave me a book called Women Who Run With Wolves by Clarissa Pinkola Estes. And at the time... It's a pretty thick book. She's a Jungian analyst, but what she does is she's a storyteller, and she tells stories that are symbolic, and that's the language of our soul. But what she does is she'll analyze it at the end and say, well, this is what it means, instead of just having to read a fairy tale, and it sounds so bizarre, you don't understand why Bambi's mother got killed. She'll explain it, symbolically, what it means to your psyche and your soul. So I just loved her and found her fascinating, but it, I didn't... I, I, I just read the book, and it was a lot for me to absorb at the time, and I forgot about it. And so there were many little stories and myths in there. Then I had this spiritual awakening. It was, 19, it was the end of 1999 when I was in Montana, and there was this uh, place where the Native American Indians out for thousands of years used to run the buffalo off the cliff to their death at the bottom, and then they would wait at the bottom and process the entire animal for their food, shelter, and clothing. And so there's a lot of bones that have built up for thousands of years. That's where I found a buffalo bone. And when I touched it, it awakened something ancient in me. And from that point on, I was just obsessed with animal bones and had never... um, I didn't know why, and that was at a critical point when I was trying to figure out who am I, what am I doing, and I was struggling with some some physical ailments, some mysterious skin, a mysterious skin disease on my face. And um, I was just sort of going through a crisis. And then, then when I, after I touched this buffalo bone, every time I went on a hike in this area, I would find bones. And I thought they were so fascinating that I got so immersed in it. It was like a passion where I forgot about my problems and worries. I didn't really care what people thought. I didn't know if I was going to make money at it. I did it because I was compelled and I couldn't stop. And then I was hiding the bones in my living room until there were so many. I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to put these in a barn and arrange them. What I realized and, and at this point, I wasn't telling anyone because I knew that in Silicon Valley, and I hadn't really started hanging out with the hippies yet, I knew in Silicon Valley people would think I was really macabre or weird collecting dead animals. <clears throat> and I started collecting roadkill also because it bothered me when cars were running over the animals. So then I started rescuing roadkill. And it just turned so big 
I put it in the barn. I never let anyone in the barn. I never told, never told anyone. In 15 years, I had a session with a shaman on Skype, um, a, a couple, a married couple. Um, and he's looking behind me, and he's like, what is that? Is that... And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a bone. And he, he awoke something in me that it was really important what I was doing, and I realized that I had become one of the, the characters in Clarissa Pinkola Estes' fairy tale called La Loba. And La Loba is a woman who would walk along the creek and look for wolf bones and she wanted to articulate the bones and put the wolf back together and so she searched and searched and searched until she found every single bone and there's something like 300 bones in a wolf and when she laid them out on the table in the shape of the wolf and had every single little tiny bone she sang over the bones and the wolf slowly began to flesh out and fur out to the point where it got up and looked her in the eye and ran away out into the forest and when it jumped over the river by the glint of the moonlight or the sunlight it morphed into a woman with long black red and blonde hair and I thought oh my gosh that's what I was doing We're spiritual beings having a human experience. The bones represent our soul, the part of us that never dies. It's that inner essence that I, I, that was my wound when I was young. I knew I was deeply hurt that no one saw who I was on the inside. And that's why I spiraled into depression. And I made my lifelong mission to understand that. And so collecting bones was symbolic of me piecing back together the disinherited and shamed and, uh, parts of myself from societal, familial, media conditioning. And so I was, I was astounded to look back and say, my gosh, I'm La Loba. I love it. Yeah, nice. Do you think, with a lot of these conversations that we have, uh, both offline and online, it, we always ultimately come to the question of, free will versus destiny, where the story that you mentioned, unbeknownst to you at the time, that you're living out what has, what could potentially have been, you know, etched in stone, and you're living it out. So, so what's your take on the whole free will versus destiny conversation? Well, I am a big follower of astrology, uh, and in astrology, what I believe is that we're up there as spiritual beings and we <clears throat> choose with our spiritual guides the lessons that we want to learn and come down on the human plane, the plane of duality. And we pick our parents and we pick the challenges and the lessons that we want to learn and we have these inherent gifts in our soul that we carry with us from lifetime to lifetime to lifetime. But when we come down to the human plane, we forget that and society can, you know, um, presses it out of us. And so... There's a blueprint of your soul that can be found the day you're born in the astrological natal chart. And it shows the potential of who you are. But I believe that we do have free will as human beings. So we don't know. There's a high road and a low road. And if somebody forgets who they are and don't do the work and, and don't maximize the potential of their chart, well, that's free will. That's their choice. So it's hard to say, you know, um, 
that it's 100% destiny. I do believe in destiny, though, because I've had interactions with people, places, and things, and events and opportunities that are just so astounding. It could be nothing else but a, a godsend. But I also think that sometimes people aren't paying attention. You might get a clue or a sign or a person, and if you're numbed out or zoned out or you're not a believer, the universe is trying to hit you overhead. Hey, it's your destiny calling. So I do believe in destiny, and I also believe in free will, and I also believe that not everybody maximizes their potential. Yeah, because, uh, you know, as you're talking, there are some similarities that resonated with me as far as, you know, living this one life that was supposed to be ideal, and then you're like, oh, this other life is really pulling me, and then you get to the middle of the other life, and you're like, you know what, I kind of like steak. I mean, just some of the other things that you were used to in your other life. And I remember a good friend of mine, she was saying that uh, that life is over, Hamza. Like, I know you're kind of looking at it, reminiscing, but, you know, you've moved on. And ultimately, I kind of let that go, and it sounds like on some levels you did as well. Exactly. And it's all, I do think that kind of thing is really part of learning as well, because we are on the plane of du- duality, and so we don't know what we want until we know what we don't want, or we... We might not want to turn around until we struggle. So having the struggle isn't a bad thing, or, or it doesn't mean that you're off path necessarily. It means you have that experience and you know it firsthand. So you could actually take that, turn it around into a gift. Take your wound, your struggle, because you know it, you immersed into it. Turn it around as a gift and help people who have the same problem. And see where... Actually, you, you mentioned um, ex- Esther and Abraham Hicks earlier. It's that same thing she, they talk about, the contrast. Um, so all is good. It's all intended. If we're awake and we're aware, we learn from it, and we can find the gifts in it. So two-part question. Well, other thing I was thinking about was when I had gone through, uh, I had graduated from Horizon Center of Intuitive Awareness the last decade, and at the time, there were a lot of people coming through. They were all uh, like mid-30s and, and older, and they were all single. And what we had surmised was these are the people that, you know, had something in their chart of what they wanted to complete without any uh, gaps. And what I mean by gaps were the second group of people that had come in were um, late 40s and older, and they had children. So because of the children, there was maybe like a 20-year gap where they more so had to focus on, you know, raising the family, the husband, and that type of life before diving full full throttle into this life. And it sounds a little bit like what you had gone through as well. Yeah, that is true because I, I did realize it. So I really tried to make sense of my struggle at the time, but because I was so young, I couldn't do that. I didn't have an elder to guide me and tell me what was going on. And I didn't understand life stages. But I really believe, looking back now, in life stages. And we're society, we are a society and a culture that wants immediate gratification and fame, and we want all the answers now. And I've, I, in my perspective, it feels like every decade there's something to learn. And what I see now is we need elders with wisdom, and we need young people to look up to the elders and value them for their wisdom. So the elders need the young people that you're talking about in their 30s, 20s, and 30s who aren't married yet because they have vision and ideals and a lot of energy and dreams and passion. And that enlivens 
the elders. And the elders have a lot of support and stability and strength and wisdom to hold and support and guide and be a witness for these young people and help them say, this is normal, what you're going through, why don't you try this, move here, I've got you, you know, you're going to be okay, whatever it is, sharing ideas. And it's sort of, I see it as a circle. These people you're talking about in the, the, the 20s and 30s that don't have families with the elders whose kids are gone, and then in the middle are these people raising their family, and that's their primary goal. Absolutely. And that takes me to the second part. So you're speaking with uh, someone in high society, and they have the kids and the, you know, the soccer tags on the car and you know, the, whole, <laughs> the whole picture. How do you slowly get them to, uh, I don't want to say it's an illusion, but kind of get into seeing an, open, an openness to a different perspective that you could bring? What I try to do is just magnetize the people who are ready to receive my medicine. That's my mantra. That's the, the vibration I want to create because you have to be ready. Uh, and I don't want to force anyone to believe me. So usually if someone's ready and they're a, you know, a, a, a married person with children and they just are so piled up and exhausted from life and action on items and doing and accomplishing, they, they come to a crisis where they want help and they want to change. So it's easier to work with someone like that. Um, and what I would point out to them is that you have spent a life doing so many good things. You've gone to school and you've got the degree and you've got the family and the home and the husband and the house and the cars and you're volunteering at school and you're, you're, you have a lot of friends and you're going to parties and everything is external and tangible and it takes a lot of energy and effort to do that and the older we get and the more people we're responsible for, the more it piles on and the less useful energy we have to balance it out. We're now running on empty, and it's like nature. We have a nature inside of us, and there's a nature outside of us. And so we need to learn how to weave back and forth and go in and out instead of always going out. And we have been told this lie, you know, and we compare each other on social media and at parties that we need to look, act, think, and do a certain way. And so we just keep doing more because we think it's going to make us lovable and, it, and, and we're afraid of not fitting in and it doesn't. It makes us exhausted. So all we have to do is to stop and take time to go inward and replenish. What happens when you can, when, what I say is, if you are completely exhausted and drained and depressed and maybe even suffering from a mysterious disease like I was, a skin disease, it's a, there's a good chance that you're not connected to your inner authentic self, your soul. And if you are connected to your inner authentic soul, you are enlivened from the inside out because you're connected to the spiritual realm, which is a higher vibration. And it's, it's connecting with your childlike self. What did you do as a child? Why are children so much so uh, um, uplifting to be around? Because children are authentically curious, playful, creative, spontaneous, wild, doing what they want to do. They're not thinking, what, what will people think of me? And they're not thinking, how can I make money? So hearken back to who you were as a child. Do something that you did when you were a child that you never do anymore. And know that if you can connect with that passion and who you are authentically on the inside, which was what happened to me with the bones, 
that healed this huge, huge, giant, red, pussy, um, staph infection cheek from my eye to my chin and my nose to my ear. I mean, for years I had that on my face and no doctor and no holistic healer could heal it. And when I connected with the bones and just started doing what I wanted to do and feeling so much love and joy in it and not worried about other what people were thinking, you know, for 15 years in my barn, you know, it only took about a year and the, the skin disease disappeared because I was going inward and connecting with that spiritual energy that is such a high vibration, it heals. So that's what I would do. I try to get people to see the difference between their external and internal world. And one of the fastest ways to calibrate yourself is to open all of your senses out in nature and get and, and, and uh, the vibration will connect with your inner essence. Absolutely. And uh, when you're talking about a child and, and, and also thinking like a child and just having that wonder, were you able to circle back to your, I guess, original family that you were separated from after your mom got married? No, I haven't done that. It was, it's a very, very complicated story. I didn't even realize. I was, so tra- I was so traumatized that I actually had a split off. I disassociated from my soul in my teens, and it took me a long time to get it back. Uh, and um, there, I have reconnected with my mother's side of the family, but n- not... Not physically. We don't hang out and do stuff together, but you know, we talk on the phone here and there. Uh, and then on my father's side, no. Uh, and it's a complicated story, but I wasn't even aware of the disconnection or the trauma until I was, oh, I, until my kids were like six or seven. Well, my kids were probably toddlers, maybe four or five years old. That's when I had the flashback and the awakening. Oh, my gosh. I haven't done anything in nature since I was 11. I don't go hiking. I don't go walking. I am so mainstream. I'm working out in the gym, and I'm going to parties, and I'm... I I was just outside in my yard with my kids, and I had this huge epiphany flashback to my childhood. And it scared me. I was like, my gosh, my kids need a connection to nature. And so that was an awakening for me when I started to even realize that I was cut off from my family and, and nature. It was the children, my children, who 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 awoke me. They're always the best teachers, you know. <laughs> they are. They are because they get us to resonate with our soul, our childlike self, because that's where the magic is. Mm-hmm. Lucinda, let me ask: How so? How long had you been collecting bones before you, you know, family members, or you told you know family members that you were doing that? <laughs> well. When I first started doing, I'm, I'm kind of uh, one of these people that likes to shock because I have a hard time bringing up what I want to talk about. And so sometimes I'll just drop a bomb to see who, who responds. And so in my family, I just like to shock them. And I've always done, I, I, I guess I've been a troublemaker in my family because even when I was suicidal, that was devastating for my parents because back then, not a lot of people went to a psychologist and I was considered crazy and that's embarrassing for the family. So I've always been sort of a rebel within the family and now in the community, but it was the same thing with the bones. I would talk about it with my, my, um, I had kids at that point 
and my husband, and we lived in a big, giant mansion in Atherton at the time, and it was very formal. And so I'd collect the bones, and I thought it was really cool, and I shared that with them. And they're like, oh, my God, that's just mom. Mom's kind of crazy. But it was a yeah. family secret. And then, and then my husband just thought, oh, yeah, it's kind of like bringing a leaf home or a, bear, a bird's nest. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, honey. And the good news is he let me do it. But as it started growing, I think they were like, what is she doing? Like I would put a dead raccoon in the freezer until I could figure out how to get work with the bones. And it, and then I had all these things building up in this formal living room in Atherton on the tables and under the couch and on the and, – and so it just happened slowly, and it was fine until – and, and then I started teaching nature camps to kids. We, we, we moved to Portola Valley, and I started doing nature camps for kids. And so then it kind of seemed more like natural history museum type of thing. Um, kids were so fascinated with the bones. And it still seemed like, oh, you know, some sort of little thing I was doing on the side. It didn't seem significant to anyone. And as long as I continued to do what society and family expected of me, like be a volunteer, be a friend, say yes to everything, don't say no to people because you don't want to hurt their feelings, go to every single party, look good, be darling, be engaging, talk about what other people want to talk about. As long as I continue to do all that, the bones on the side were fine. But when it started to get bigger, and this is important, and this is who I am, and I'm coming out of the closet, and it's my magic because I'm connected to the spiritual realm, and guess what, guys? I have a connection to the spiritual realm, and I'm going to write a book about my life, and I want to go out and help people, then it really started to, sh- to cause waves because that's not how people wanted me to be. Yeah. And, and that was it was a battle, and it was scary. It's almost like the witch hunts. You feel like you're coming out of the closet, and you're going to be killed or shunned for it. It's a big deal. But you're here to talk to us on our podcast, so you're saying that our worst-case scenarios that we put in our mind never really happen. Exactly. And, in fact, I had never... Uh, written a book before in my life. I was very, you know, masculine energy. You know, I, I, in the corporate world, I was acting like a guy. I had to cut my hair, make it short, um, wear a suit with a bow tie, um, because men, women had to act like men back then in order to succeed in a man's world. I'm now, one of the other things I'm doing is getting in touch with the full spectrum of what it means to be a woman. There's so much more to us than that. And it doesn't mean, quote, unquote, doing more. But, um, I, you know, writing a book is more creative energy as opposed to masculine, uh, linear, um, exerting sheer will. Being creative is being open, and you don't know how long it's going to take, and it looks like you're doing nothing. And so that was a whole other process. It took me two and a half years to write this book. I had never been trained to do it. I didn't, I had never taken a writing class. My family thought I was so, my, you know, in particular my husband and my parents, why would you write a book about your life? Nobody wants to read it. And if you're going to say something in there that's embarrassing to the family, don't do it. Don't bring shame to the family. So it was hard because how can I, I don't want to bring shame to the family, but I need to say what my struggles were that I overcame. So I sat on the couch for two and a half years and said no to every single invitation, every person, even my husband and my parents and my sisters, and I just said, no, I'm writing this book. And I looked like I was doing nothing. They really thought I was crazy. Like, you're just sitting on the couch staring at the wall. And what I was doing, as you know, is 
trying to open that portal and tap into the spiritual realm. And I did. And I wrote the book. And it took two and a half years. And I did it. And I've already won three awards. And it has now established me as an expert. It's a funny thing in this world. If you write a book, you're an expert. And I'm doing public presentations and podcast interviews and writing a blog and um, doing book clubs. And it's so exciting because I did it. And now I'm enlivened doing what I want to do and I'm passionate. At the same time, I can look back and say, hey, I did all the human things too. I went to school and I got a job and I handled survival on my own. And then I got married and I understood relationship and parenting and my kids are off doing their inner thing, and now I'm an elder living higher purpose, sharing wisdom with younger people, and I'm so, and I'm myself, and I don't have to hide anything. And now my family and my husband and my parents get it. You just have to do it. Yeah. I was trying to picture what it was like at your table on Thanksgiving. Um, well, which era are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> well, now they accept you and they're like, well, you know what? I always supported you. And you're like, really? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's so true. Uh, uh, it's interesting because it was actually the hardest on my parents because I had to talk about the suicidal depression and there's a lot of stuff in the book about at the time I blamed my parents for, you know, placing all, you know, I really felt from age 11 to 27 that if I wasn't beautiful and accomplished, I was unlovable and they wouldn't love me. And so that made me angry. And I had to go off and individuate and separate from the family to figure that out. And then I was able to put it in perspective and come full circle and I'm so grateful for all the blessings they gave me. And um, at the same time, to put that in a book, it's, um, it's hard for them. So sometimes it's awkward. Even though they support me and they love me and they get it, it's still an awkward thing because they're around town and everybody's read the book and now they feel exposed. There's nothing in there that was vindictive or tell-all. It was just the bare minimum. I have to tell this piece or nobody's going to understand what I went through. But it's hard for their generation, and there's very good reasons why they're that way. Absolutely. There's no accident. So, like you said, if you didn't have the contrast, it wouldn't bring you to where you are today. Yeah. But my husband, uh, he's a cat with nine lives, and he just sort of bounces back. It was super hard for him for many, many years, and he just didn't understand it. And he would harass me, constantly interrupting my creative flow wanting me to hang out with him or go somewhere or send him a fa- send a fax for him and it would break my flow and he just didn't understand why I would write a book and how, why it was taking so long just get it done and i it was so difficult for us cuz we were speaking a different language and i was like a sitting duck because just sitting there it looked like i was doing nothing so i was constantly getting interrupted and now jump ahead he's like my number one fan he, you know, he, he's, he's just, yeah, we talk about all the time, what happened today? He doesn't really understand the spiritual jargon. Um, but finally, he's listening. He wants to hear about my day. He comes and supports my presentations. He wants me to practice in front of him. And so it's really nice. Very nice. And so it looks like you, you guys have definitely matured as far as the language that you and he share and you and your family share. 
And on your site, you have a beautiful picture of an owl. So I, I'd like for you to talk about the communication in the language that the animal realm speaks to us on a daily basis. The animals. Oh, you know, all my work is really for the animals. I love animals so much. And in ancient cultures, before there were podcasts and workshops and psychologists, our ancestors looked to the animals as their guides. And so we have an inherent nature inside of us that is mirrored outside of us in nature. And we are told by society, culture, family, how to think, act, and behave. And we think there's a cookie-cutter formula for success and happiness. And actually, we all have an original, authentic soul essence inside of us. And when we align with, for example, an animal totem, and we study them and follow their ways of being, and uh, interpret messages and signs that come from them, it helps us get in touch with who we are authentically on the inside. So if you look at a wolf, a wolf is not going to ever act like a squirrel. A wolf knows it's a wolf. And so animal totems are really powerful because you don't feel lonely. You're with this invisible animal guide all the time, and you're studying its behavior and observing it. And, And now in modern era, it could be watching documentaries, reading books, wearing um, a a replica of a wolf around your neck, um, or going on an adventure to observe wolves, and just constantly thinking about it and understanding its way of being. It keeps you close to it, and it keeps you in your imagination, and you feel less lonely, and then you're able to take on the wolf characteristics because that's really who you are, and there's light and dark aspects of a wolf. You know, a wolf is a beautiful, loving, family-oriented animal, and also it can be a ravenous, destructive animal. We all have a dark and light aspect, so we can learn from the animal in both ways and know when we're out of balance if the shadow aspect comes up. Likewise, other animals come into our life daily or monthly or for seasons or years to bring us through a, a, a period of time when we need their support. We need to act like a different animal because we, we all have a lot of characters and archetypes inside of us. We're not just one thing. And so maybe a squirrel would come to you and you would observe that behavior and align with it or have a lot of interactions with squirrel where it's symbolically sending messages to your soul about how to be in the workforce. Because I think when I think of the work, the squirrel, I think, oh, boy, they work so hard, but they love it, and they're always collecting nuts and running and jumping and flying. And so there would be like maybe perhaps a lesson in there to be that way in the workforce, just to work hard and to love it and bring a lot of joy and flexibility to it. That's just one example. It could be a lot more complex than that. But um, that's what the animals mean to me, and they're all beautiful and extraordinary with their own unique gifts. Um, And then the bones are the same because it is part of the animal. So when I come across a bone, not only do I look at the symbolic uh, message and energy in the bone from what kind of animal it came from, but also the piece of the animal, the part. So if I have a tailbone, then I look into the symbology of what's a tail. It's about balance and communication. What's the message there symbolically? It's like reading a, a, a myth or a fairy tale. So I could go on and on and on, but at the end of the day, you feel less lonely because you always have the animals with you. 
it, it seems like I mean there's a really good marriage with the with the bones and with the animal totems and and you're incorporating the astrological standpoint together. It seems like how do I get out of my house and start my day? Do I need to look outside for squirrels first and then check my natal chart and then see if there's bones on the highway? <laughs> <laughs> I know it's so true. You know what I do? I If I wanted to go out and find a bone right now, I could not find it. And, you know, the bones turned into like I said, an entire animal. So if the animal was pristine, then I would take it to a taxidermist. And if it was rotting, I would work with it to get at the bones. So it's a very deep spiritual relationship that I have with transformation because it turns out that I'm not just a bone collector, but I'm a transformer. Because when the, uh, you know, and this evolved over 15 years, I didn't even know what I was doing. But when I was pulling the, the animals off the road because I thought it was disrespectful, the cars kept running over them, I would return it to the soil and I would do a little prayer. And then sometimes the animal would sort of speak to me intuitively and it would, it would just say, bring me home or don't you think my tail is beautiful? Would you take it? Because it's, it's meant for you. It's medicine. It's a God of vibration. And that's how I started talking to the animals and I would just intuitively do things. And then I would like, sometimes I would bury them in the ground and then later would dig up the bones. Sometimes I would put them in water and water would transform the meat to get the bones. Sometimes I would put it on top of the roof and the sun would, and the animals would pick away at the bones. It just, I started doing all these fun experiments to get at the bone and what I realized is that I'm actually a master transformer because when you're transforming meat, decomposing to get at the bone, that's transformation. And I've done it over and over and over and over a million times and it's never grossed me out even when it smells putrid or it's rotting or there's maggots I think I just see the beauty in the animal because I connect with the soul and I I sing over the bones and I sing over the animal and I do a ceremony and I get up and close and I'm looking at the whiskers and the nose and the claw and I'm thinking this is a gift I've never been so close to a wild animal and it's intimacy and that's enlivening me and it's connecting me to the spiritual realm and I'm learning not to be judgmental because I love everything about this animal in its fullness, even when it smells or it's rotting, which mirrors life in humans. And I don't want to judge anyone. I want to love them in their fullness and to help them pull out the shame that they're hiding inside. And so this is what the animals were teaching me when we were in rapport. Uh, and I... I realized if I wanted to go out and look for a bone, I'd never find it. And what would happen is when I go out and I'm just open and I'm wandering and I don't have an agenda and I'm open, all of a sudden I'll get a ping and I'll look to my left and, oh, my gosh, there's a bone, there's a feather, there's a bird nest, there's a big giant leaf, the biggest leaf I've ever seen, there's, there's a dead animal. And it's extraordinary how often that happens to me. When I don't have an expectation and I'm just open, things just happen and then I respond. Lucinda, do you you find that you resonate with certain animal bones more than others or is it all kind of about the same across the board? That's a great question. There are animals that I really resonated with most at first. For, For sure, wolf was my totem as a mother. And I talk about this in my, my memoir. I, the book is my, you know, the memoir is my life story and all the lessons and how I transformed over and over and over. And um, what I, I, I ended up bringing an animal into every chapter 
what was this animal teaching me at this stage in my life? And I talk in one chapter about being raised by my stepfather, who I love dearly. He adopted me, and he loves me like his own, and he's still my father, and I don't know my birth father. But it was a struggle when he took me on at age 11, because he had never had a child and didn't know what he was doing. And um, I was raised with a man's perspective. But in the book, I talk about how he's a lion, and lions rule with more control and, and ego and dominion and um, power, whereas I was a wolf. So the name of the chapter is A Wolf Among, Lion, a wolf among Lions. I am more of a, a leader that inspires people and works in a cohesive unit as opposed to um, a ruler that rules people. Now, I love lions. It's not that lions are bad. It's just that his way of ruling was different than mine. He controlled me. He was the king. He was the leader. And I am more of a, a wolf. And I didn't know it at the time, and that's what was hard for me. We were different. So wolf became my emblem. And then, of course, I read Women Who Run With Wolves in the 90s, and then I became La Loba, the woman searching for wolves. So wolf was a huge emblem that brought me back to the wilderness, that awoke in me, and I just loved wolf and was obsessed with wolf when I was a mother. And, and then owl, owl came to me, and that was another obsession. And I came to realize that I had two strong totems. The earth totem was wolf. That's who I was in the material plane as a mother. And then the owl was who I was spiritually. You know, owls really aligned with the moon and the nighttime and the feminine principle because the sun during the day is a masculine principle. So I started to get into touch with who I was with a woman and I wanted to redefine what it meant to be a woman. Yes, we are super women. And we can do everything. We can cook and clean and raise children and work in the workforce and be athletes and be scientists and be intelligent and do it all. But we're also magical beings. You know, we're witches and we're priestesses and we're healers and we're oracles. And we've been killed for it in past lifetimes. And men too. And because everybody has masculine and feminine energy inside of them. And so I'm all about the moon, which transforms every month from a crescent moon to a full moon and then goes inward and dies off to a dark sky only to be reborn to another crescent moon as opposed to the masculine principle, the sun, which is round and bright all day. So, And then the night is mysterious like a woman. And so I'm re- reconnecting with the feminine principle and aligning with owl and being able to see in the dark. I see who people are on the inside, because my original wound was not being seen for who I was on the inside, my spiritual self. And so I now can see in the dark, behind people's facades, who they are on the inside. So that's what Owl taught me. And then, of course, it just went crazy. You know, uh, the more I opened up and got into it, you know, then I got into turkey vulture, because turkey, turkey vultures are about transformation, and they eat rotting flesh. And oh my gosh, and then I started to love the deer because wolf are sustained by deer and there's deer everywhere around my house. I mean, it goes on and on and on. <laughs> so I love them all. Lucinda, mm. let me ask you this. You mentioned earlier you have an interest in indigenous cultures. I was just curious, have you ever heard of and or read the book uh, Mutant Message Down Under? Yes. Oh, my gosh. That was one of the books I loved. So I have goosebumps right now. I mean, that was probably 
must have been in 2000s. Somehow I read that early 2000s. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of my favorite books. Someone gave it to me in the early 90s, and uh, I read it, and I was like, wow, what a story. <laughs> yeah, you are very progress. You guys are really progressed and advanced for young people. My gosh, I mean, I'm so impressed and so just uplifted to know that you're out there. <laughs> well, I'll take that. Young people, all right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we always want to give, like, the homies perspective. Like you said, every, we're all connected, so we all have our different viewpoints of it. So we just like to speak with people that also inspire to give that intrinsic motivation as you have. Yeah, well, thank you. It's just, uh, this is so exciting. What animals do you guys align with? Um... Well, that's a good question. Uh, we had a, actually we had a guest. We've had a guest on a couple times, uh, Avery Alexander, who's she's uh, promotes uh, what is known as hyper sleeping, and she also does um, what, are they, what does she call that uh, the uh, animal um, animal journey or something like that. And and my mother and I went to one of her sessions and where she plays music and you're blindfolded and your animals uh, will come to you during this session, and they did. And for me, it was a bear and what else was it? A bear, a bear like and an eagle came to me. And then she tells you, she looks it up and kind of tells you what those symbolize and mean and, and, and whatnot. So for me, it was like a bear and an eagle. Whoa, I have so many goosebumps right now. That's yeah. really potent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you like Avery. Right. <laughs> you like each other. Yeah, yeah, you two really like each other. Uh, she does. She does different events around the globe. So mm-hmm. she has some upcoming events happening in Jamaica in 2019. So we're going to definitely follow. We're going to take the intrinsic motivation on the road. <laughs> oh, I love so, that. Yeah. Yeah, we may need to do uh, the wilderness out west too, since it's in David's backyard. You have to come here. Come do an episode on my property. Yes, that would, be, that, that would be great. It was just kind of giving me a little goosebumps when you were talking when we first started about, you know, going up into the mountains and you can see Santa Cruz. And I have family that live up actually in the Santa Cruz uh, mountains down more closer to, um, you know, Gilroy and Watsonville up there. But, um, yeah, it's just beautiful. So beautiful up there. Oh, yeah, you could do an episode there too. Boy, I talk about wilderness. I love it. Yeah, yep. Yeah, yeah let's resonated. Do it. Oh, absolutely. And I'm thinking when we do it, it would be like you were talking about the difference between the day and the night. And and last night we had the full moon, and it was just really good to kind of take a step back and actually just watch it move across the sky. Where you know everyone says take the time to smell the roses. It's just some element of mysteriousness, like you said, with the woman. It just made me have like this greater reverence reverence for women, you know. And so. Um, not pandering at all to the women out there, but... <laughs> yeah, and, you know, pandering to the, the feminine nature inside men, too, because the, men have been just as wounded by cutting off the, the feminine, their own feminine aspect. Where, you know, you can't cry, you can't have emotions, you yeah. can't be artistic by mainstream standards. Um, so I by no means focus on women or... Um, or, or, or Yeah, we're all the same. We all have the yeah, feminine but- inside us. There's the saying that, you know, a guy can reach some certain level, but he can go to the level he can't imagine if he has uh, support with that woman and that feminine energy. So, you know, it definitely takes 
both of us to work together to reach our highest potential. Absolutely. It's balance. I mean, you know, you know, if you were all feminine, you'd be like a wet noodle. I mean, we, you know, you do, there's just no form and, and fire. So absolutely. All is good until it's out of balance. It's all about balance. It's just that we're a culture that has overemphasized the masculine energy. And that's, you know, where, uh, what, what we're struggling from collectively and individually as well. But not everybody. There's people like you who are are bringing a new way of being that is more balanced. Well, um, I'm cheating a little bit. I have a twin sister, so <laughs> oh. I can see things one, day, one way, and she's like, oh, what are you, like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> so, I love that. That is such a great <laughs> metaphor. <laughs> where is she living? She's in, uh, she's in Spain. She lives in Spain. In where? So, in Spain. Pens- Pennsylvania? No, in Spain. Oh, Spain, Spain. Oh, yeah. okay, that's really interesting, too. Are you going to do a show there? Yeah, uh, actually, that is the plan. We're actually working on logistics now, so that, I can't wait because, one, just hanging out with my twin sister and my other sisters, not just counting them, but my twin sister and I, is just you know, we get in trouble sometimes for being attached at the hip, literally. Oh, I bet you miss her. Oh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, yeah, she's awesome. Is she super spiritual? Oh, yeah, I am totally on crutches, and I have uh, training wheels and all the above, so <laughs> she's soaring. Oh, <laughs> you're so cute. I love that. I don't think you're on crutches. I mean, I'm actually thinking, I, I, I don't know, you could teach me a lot. I've listened <laughs> to your shows, and I'm just really blown away. There's a turkey vulture we- flying over my head. Yeah, that, that's what I was going to ask you. Uh, I actually have the uh, Ted Andrews book, which is kind of like a pocket guide for animal speak. So it's always interesting when, uh, you know, to give a shout to him or, or for you for when we come across a wolf in a path or what have you, and it's kind of a good reference guide of what's happening spiritually. Like they're always giving messages to us that are open to listening to it. Exactly. Oh, Ted Andrews is one of my all-time Heroes, yeah, I've had his book also since the 90s, and it's like a Bible, um, and a lot of his other books too, but Animal Speak, yes, yes, yes. And that reminds me, yeah, we don't have to, like, we can always be close to an animal through our imagination or reading or watching a documentary or whatever, but also, so many animals come to us daily. I mean, you could be in the city in New York, and a pigeon does something so unusual and extraordinary. When you have an unusual or extraordinary interaction with any animal, there's a message there. It doesn't have to be your totem, and usually it's not your totem. Um, a, a, an animal runs right in front of your car, or um, you, you, maybe you see a dead bird on the side of the road, whatever. There's always a message there from the animals. Absolutely. And, and after your book was done, I know the, the next question, and it's probably the, the masculine energy, but is there another book that's coming up now, or what other things are you working on? <laughs> masculine energy. So funny. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to say I love men, and I love the masculine energy, and I'm actually, um, yeah, I really resonate with it. I have a lot of fire in my uh, astrological chart um but what is next okay i i don't know i just published the book self-published in february and it has just exploded um you know the the interviews and the podcasts of the book clubs and large presentations and 
I'm doing a blog now, and I'm also working on a video blog. That's probably going to be, oh, and I just recorded my audio book, so that will be out soon. But I'm really excited to do a video blog, and I've started it already, and it has to do with the animal encounters where I in, have an animal encounter and interpret it, or somebody has an animal encounter, they send it in to me, and I interview them, and uh, we interpret the sign and the symbol together. I also counsel people. Um, so all these things are swirling right now, and as soon as it gets to the end of the one-year mark when the book is a year old, which is coming up, I'm going to go inward and process and think and review and then reemerge with something new, but it's all going to still be happening, if that makes sense. Oh, it does. And I'm really interested. Keep us posted with the videography aspect with the animal encounters. I don't know if you're looking at doing a YouTube channel versus also doing it on uh, Instagram TV. You know, Instagram TV is really making a good run as to competing against YouTube, not to have uh, us versus them, but using leveraging both platforms may prove very beneficial too. That's such an interesting um, observation because, yeah, I am struggling with what platform to use, and you're the second person who has said Instagram TV. Also, I think Instagram is really visual, and what I do is so visual that that's, it's probably a good place for me. Thank you for that. Absolutely. Thank you for oh, that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, we are at the top of the hour, and uh, David, did you have any additional questions? Uh, no, man. I think we covered a lot. <laughs> we did, and the hour always flies by. Uh, but, Lucinda, before we go head out, if you can let everyone know where they can actually get your book and get in contact with you on your website and, and to be abreast, uh, kept abreast of when the videography Animal Encounters comes about. Great. Thank you. Well, my website is AuthenticWildness.com. So Authentic Wildness, some people think wilderness, but it's wildness, W-I-L-D-N-E-S-S, AuthenticWildness.com. And everything you need to know is on there. I have a written blog, and when the video blog is out, it'll be on there. And there's also a, an overview of the book with a link to Amazon. And my book is available on Amazon. Uh, and all of my offerings are described there and, um, and, and contact information if you want to reach out to me. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, you have just been in tune to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza. And I'm David. And Lucinda, it was a pleasure. It will definitely reach out to do a uh, intrinsic motivation on the road to uh, your neck of the woods. Please do. I want to stay in touch with you guys. You guys are, are where it's at, and I want to learn from you, and I want to support your journey as well. So let's definitely co-create some more. Yes. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Thanks Thank for you. Time. Thank yes. you. This is an honor. Bye. Yes. Ciao. Thanks again for checking out another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective podcast. Please check us out on our website at intrinsicmotivation.life where you can click on the speak pipe button and leave any suggestions for a future podcast that you'd like us to cover. 
Also check us out on our social media sites. We have a YouTube channel, Facebook page, iTunes podcast, in addition to Stitcher and Google Play, all under intrinsic motivation from a homie's perspective. Check you out next time. Have a great day.